Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we have been marching our way through the book of Exodus. And this morning, we're going to study a very critical moment in the history of God's people uh, and in all of Scripture, really, because this, the reason why this is so important is because it's imperative that we grasp what's going on here in Exodus 24 in order to understand the unfolding of the rest of Scripture and God's plan uh, for redemption. Because what's taking place in this chapter is the ratification ceremony of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God enters into with His people Israel through their mediator, Moses, as well as the laying out of the blueprint of how God calls His people to worship Him as their God. And so we need to keep that in mind this morning as we approach this text here in Exodus 24. But as we do so, we need to go before the Lord and ask His blessing on our time. So let's do so. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are dependent fully upon your Spirit coming now. Coming now and opening our hearts that we might receive this word, this truth that is timely and necessary in our lives. And so we plead with you. We beg of you to come now to stir our hearts that we might see this Jesus who is high and lifted up and that we might forsake all to follow him in every aspect of our lives. Would you stir our hearts to conviction of sin? And would you spur us on to love and good deeds while we await your glorious return? So we ask that you would do these things, and as we witness and watch you do so, we will give you the praise and the glory that is due your name. So we pray all this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Have you, how often or how, if ever maybe, have you contemplated why you come to worship each week? Why do you do it? Why do you wake up Sunday morning, put on clothes and get in the car and drive to worship? Is it merely out of habit? Children, teenagers, are you forced to by mom and dad? Culturally, is it just what you do in the South? You go to church on Sunday morning. Or are you motivated out of guilt because of the wrong that you've committed in the past week? Let me ask you another question. How often, if ever, do you pay attention to or wonder why certain things are done or are not done in the midst of the worship service? Why do we have a call to worship at the beginning of our service? Why do we have God's Word read and have it taught and preached to us? Why do we confess our sin? And why do we partake of the Lord's Supper regularly in worship? You ever wonder the purpose behind these various elements in our worship together? Well, this morning, as we study this text, it's my hope and my prayer uh, that we will come to a greater understanding as to the fundamental purpose of our corporate worship and what informs all that we do here together on Sunday mornings. The goal of worship will become clear as we examine, I think, this covenant-making ceremony that takes place uh, in this text here in Exodus 24. Now again, what we have here is a ratification of a covenant between God and His people Israel. And children, we said last week that a covenant is a relationship, it's an agreement between two or more parties. And we still enter into covenants today, whether it's uh, with a loan, with a bank, or 
uh, when you're purchasing a business or you're in a marriage covenant. Um, we have covenants all along that we enter into that we may not even realize often. But again, as we learned last week, we said that covenants, though, in the ancient Near East usually involved two kings. And there was a, a more powerful king, a suzerain king, and a lesser, more subservient king, a vassal king. And so they would enter into covenant with oaths and vows and commitments to one another. And then they would follow that by a treaty ceremony where they would commit themselves to what was laid out in this covenant together. Now, when we're talking about the biblical covenants of the Bible, biblical covenants involve three elements. They involve uh, the conditions of the covenant that are uh, laid out in the covenant. They involve oaths that are taken between the parties involved. And there are also sanctions that are listed. These are the listings of blessings that will come for obedience, as well as a listing of curses that will come through disobedience. And so we see God following this ancient Near East pattern here as he enters into this covenant with Israel. Now we read just a moment ago in verse 1 that God calls Israel to ascend uh, the top of the mountain of Mount Sinai. And it's a little confusing in this passage because he calls him here in verse 1, but this ascension doesn't actually take place until verse 9. And so Moses actually will ascend and descend this mountain seven different times by the time it's all said and done. But he calls Moses to come up, and this time he says, bring with you your brother Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and then the 70 elders, who are presumably the elders that are called and appointed uh, at Jethro's advice in Exodus uh, 18. And so he calls them to come up. But before they can go up and ascend the mountain to meet with God, this covenant between Israel and God had to be ratified. It had to be confirmed. And so in verses 3 through 8, that's what we have is this confirmation of the covenant. And notice that on two occasions, Moses read the law to the people during this covenant ceremony. Their bookends, on the front end, in verses 3 and 4, he reads uh, the the law to his people. And then in verse 7, at the end of the ceremony, he does so as well. And we're told so, he says he read all the words of the Lord. Now, that's likely referring to the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments are often referred to as the Decalogue. Deca meaning ten, and logos meaning word, the ten words. And then he goes on and says he read them all the rules. And last week we said that chapters 21 through 23 that we looked at are the comprise of the civil code of Israel, the book of the covenant. And so that's what he's referring to here that Moses read to the people, because Moses was very careful to write down all that God told him to say to his people. And so upon returning to the people, he read what God had told him, as well as the book of the covenant. And on that, at both occasions, the Israelites hear these words and hear the commands and laws of God, and they respond in personal commitment and submission to these commands. Right In verse 3, he sa- they say, And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agree to them. Now, just as a side, it's interesting to note that from the early stages in Israel's history, that there's written testimony of God's word. They didn't just pass down God's word orally from generation to generation. It was written down. And God's people recognized that these were God's words that he'd given to Moses, their mediator. But it wasn't just enough to agree and say, okay, these are God's words. They had to submit and commit to obeying these words that were given to them. And so collectively, the people made a personal promise and a commitment to God in this covenant ceremony. Now, in between these two readings of the law, there's this rather strange and maybe somewhat gruesome uh, ritual that takes place. 
If you look with me in verse 4 through 8, we see there that Moses erects this altar before the mountain there at Mount Sinai. And then there's 12 pillars that surround this altar. The mountain was God's presence where he dwelt, and it was holy. But yet, God's people, Israel, were sinful. And so Moses erects this altar as a representation of God's presence and almost puts it as a barrier before the mountain there. And then he has the 12 pillars around it, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Moses says, in verse 5, he sends the young men away to sacrifice oxen to the Lord and burnt offerings, peace offerings, on this altar that he'd erected. Now these bloody sacrifices that we read here in Exodus 24 are necessary and vital. They're symbolically atoning for the sins of God's people. Right, A substitute, an animal is placed on the altar rather than God's people for their sinfulness. This was the way, the only way, that God could enter in a covenant with his people and Israel could enter into this covenant as well. Israel couldn't approach the holy God because of their sins, so something had to be done to cover the multitude of their sins. Now, let's look and see what Moses does with this blood that was spilled through these sacrifices, because this is very important for us to see. In verse 6, we're told that Moses took half of the blood, and he put it in basins, and half of the blood, he threw it against the altar. Okay, and then we read on in verse 8. Then Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, so Moses takes half of this blood that was spilled from the sacrificed animals and he puts it on the altar of the Lord that represented God's presence. Right, and what this means is the primary reference for this blood is not with the people, the sinfulness and guilt of Israel, but it's actually for the wrath that is provoked by Israel's sin from a holy and just God. This is what the Bible calls propitiation. It's a sacrifice to satisfy God's anger and wrath against sin so that he's no longer angry with us. See, atonement is first about God before it is about us. And then he goes on, and Moses We said, takes the remaining blood in the basins and he sprinkles it on the people. Now, put yourself in this setting and think about this scene here that's going on. Moses takes this blood and he sprinkles it all over the people. Moms, you know how hard it is to get blood out of clothes. But the sights and the smells of the animal blood on them. Why was Moses doing this? What was this necessary and what was this all about? He had to mark the Israelites and set them apart and consecrate them as holy and distinct from all the other nations. This was Israel's, the blood on their clothes, it signified this initiation into this covenant with God. It was vitally necessary for him to do so. Growing up, I remember uh, making, we'd come up with various little clubs within neighborhood friends uh, that we played with. And we had all kinds of clubs that we came up with, whether it was a, you know, an army club or a no girls allowed club or whatever it was. And we would kind of have these rules for these clubs, right? And I remember on several occasions, we'd do this little ritual in order to show the, you know, the secrecy, right? And the, uh, the seriousness of the rules that we made in this club. And so we'd take a, a thorn or something, and we'd prick our finger. And then we'd press our fingers together with the blood there and we would show how serious we were about our club. We were blood brothers is what we would say. 
Well, here, the Mosaic Covenant is being signed in blood, as it were, between both parties. All right, God was promising Israel to be their God, that he would provide for them, he'd protect them, and he'd have his presence with them. But God's people, Israel, was promising that they would obey all that God commanded and that they would worship him alone. And we see that Israel emphatically says in response to the reading, they say, we will obey. And I think that Israel sincerely meant that when they said that they would obey all that the Lord would commanded. But I also think that Israel didn't fully understand what they were agreeing to in this covenant ceremony. Because Israel was naive not only to the fact of the greatness of God's holiness, but they were also naive to the depth of their own sin. And some 40 years later, after much sin and rebellion on Israel's part, we see that Joshua renews this very covenant with his people as they're on the edge of the promised land, about to enter in. And Joshua says to the people there in Joshua 24, he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How do you think that Israel responded to that? Yeah, yeah, we will obey. God will do whatever you ask us to. And Joshua gives them a very shocking response to their words. He goes on to say in verse 19, he says, You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. See, under the old covenant and the sacrificial system, there's no forgiveness from rebellion. Moses failed when he struck the rock twice, disobeying God. Aaron failed when he offered up the golden calf and called God's people to worship it. His sons, Nadab and Abihu, failed as they offered strange fire on the altar and they were consumed by it and put to death. And the 70 elders and the rest of Israel failed in living up to the covenant responsibilities and obligations to God. And none of them would enter into the promised land. All of them would die in the wilderness. Not one of us can obey God perfectly the way he calls us to. We can't satisfy his justice. The Mosaic covenant that Israel entered into with God that was sealed by the blood of the sacrificed animals could not truly save them eternally. That's because the covenant was broken. Not because there was something wrong with the covenant, but because humanity is broken. Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so as sinners, Israel, as well as you and I this morning, we need a better mediator with better promises. And thanks be to God that he delivers on both. Listen to what God promises to the future generation of Israel. If you turn to 2 Chronicles 17, God makes this covenant with David. He says this, beginning in verse 11. He says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, meaning when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And I will take my steadfast love from him. Excuse me, I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. 
This is the Davidic covenant, a promise of a son of God, a king, who would rule over all creation and God's kingdom forever. It doesn't stop there, though, because if we continue and journey on to Jeremiah 31, we have the promise of the new covenant there. And Jeremiah writes in the beginning of verse 31, he says, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now listen, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, not on stone tablets, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, the old covenant made no provision for the forgiveness of sin, but the new covenant does. God goes on to say a couple verses later, he says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All right, and then we journey even further. Christ finally comes as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9 that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He is this king that will reign forever, that was spoken of in Second Chronicles. He is the one who brings the mediator of this new covenant that we read in Jeremiah 31. And he says this in verse 15 of Hebrews 9. Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Under this covenant we see here in Exodus 24. See, all this taking place here in Exodus 24 is pointing to Christ. All the sacrifices, all the blood spilled is pointing to Him, the greater mediator. There's no being saved outside of Christ's atoning work and His spilled blood. The new covenant in Christ's blood is the only way whereby we can be saved. Where Israel said, we will obey, they failed. Christ says, I will obey. And he does so on our behalf. So if your faith is in Christ this morning, you now have fellowship. You have communion by virtue of Christ's substitutionary atonement and work on your behalf. As we read earlier from Hebrews 10, it's by the blood of Jesus that we can now enter into the holy places. And then the writer of Hebrews gives probably the greatest imperative in all of Scripture. He says, in light of this, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts being sprinkled clean, not with the blood of animals, but the blood of Jesus Christ, from an evil conscience and our bodies being washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves of these truths often because so many of us are often fearful, ashamed to draw near to God because of our sin and because of our past failures. And so we feel this insecurity because we think God doesn't want anything to do with us because our sin is too big. I'm too much of a mess. I'm too broken for God. And yes, his work is sufficient for some, but not for me, for others. But you don't know what I've done. But we can't trust our emotions about this reality on any given day. We have to set our gaze back upon Christ and trust in him and rest in what he has accomplished and what he has declared about us as his sons and daughters. So this covenant confirmation ceremony, we see the necessary elements 
of the book of the covenant read, God's law given to his people, as well as the blood of uh, the covenant, the sacrifice, the blood spilled in order for them to enter into his presence. But lastly, we need to see the other necessary element that takes place here in this second scene in the last half of this chapter, which is the covenant communion that happens here. Now, at this point, you may be asking, okay, still don't understand why all this is necessary. I thought we had the Abrahamic covenant, covenant of grace, that God said that he would bless his people. It was an everlasting covenant. They would be a blessing to the nations. But now we have this covenant, this law, and there's sprinkling of blood that has to happen and the reading of God's word. Why, what's the point of all this? Well, the goal of the covenant is to see the glory of God and worship him alone. Verse 9, after the ceremony is complete, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, they obey God's instruction, and they begin to ascend this mountain. And look what happens in verse 10. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now, we don't know what all is entailed in this scene but more than likely, they're looking at a vantage point from underneath, looking up, and they see this, this crystal clear pavement into the throne room of heaven. And we know that God doesn't have a body like man. But we're told that Moses and the others, they saw as it were the bottom of God's feet as they glimpsed into the heavenly places. And so what we learn here is even the smallest, seemingly insignificant part, the bottom of his feet was so overwhelmingly rich and glorious that they were blown away by it. Because see, what's important here is not so much that what Moses and the people saw, but the fact that God was present and he didn't obliterate them. Because remember what he says a few chapters later in Exodus 33, no one can see me and live. And yet, we see them coming before God in his presence. And we're told that God didn't lay a hand on them to hurt them. God allowed his people, represented by these 74, to glimpse into his face, to see his glory. And again, this gives us an understanding when Moses, again, in Exodus 33, he asks again, he says, Lord, let me see your face. He's begging because he doesn't want to be robbed of God's glory because he's seen it, he's tasted it. And it's so awesome that he wants more of it. This is the longing of every believer in Christ, whether we can articulate this or not. This is what our desires for happiness, for joy, for contentment, this is what they're rooting in. We want to see the glory of God, His face, to behold Him. See, for those who love God, our deepest longing is to see Him. But now while His face is going to be a welcome sight for the believer... For those who don't want to see him, for those who are rebelling, it will be a dread and a terror for them. Well, not only does these men see God, we're told that they ate and drank with God. Now think about that. They had a meal in God's presence. See, in the ancient world, one of the most intimate things you can do is have a meal with somebody. It establishes fellowship and communion with that other person. We get it to a small degree, even now. We know what that breeds when we have people into our home, but it was very important in that day. And so when God inviting his people, signified by these representatives here, 
to this meal, he was desiring to commune with them. This meal was a sign and a seal of their nearness with one another and their closeness to their God. And let's not forget the previous warnings that Moses had given to God's people. If you even touch the base of this mountain, you'll surely die, he says. But now we see the effects of the atonement, the sprinkled blood that covered their sin, poured out on their behalf. There's no longer condemnation. Where there was once separation, now God welcomes them in His presence, offering them communion, fellowship, and intimacy. And this covenant meal responds to the covenant meal of the new covenant. Right? When we as believers, when we gather and enjoy the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating this covenant meal. The greater Moses and the greater mediator, Jesus Christ, invites us to a greater meal. One that he told his disciples that he longed to have with them. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we say this as we serve the Lord's Supper. He said, For I received from the Lord what, he was, I was delivered to you, what was delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took his, the cup, and after supper, he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For each time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show forth and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just as God was present in the old covenant meal, so he is present in the new covenant meal as well. And God continues to be present each time his church, his people get together and partake of the Lord's Supper. He's present in Jesus Christ, who's the mediator of this new covenant. And so do you see what that means for you and me? That God calls us to come and worship and be in His presence, His very presence that is real in this meal that we partake of. That He will meet with us and He will nourish us on this very meal. He says, eat and drink in my presence. You have perfect peace now because all the requirements of righteousness have been satisfied through Jesus Christ. So come, fellowship with me. Experience intimacy there. But see, covenant communion is only possible if there's atonement and the covering of sin. Well, in the remaining verses of this chapter, beginning in verse 12, we see that Moses is summoned back up the mountain again. And some time has passed by in between the first scene and the second scene. But at this point, God calls Moses up to receive the two tablets. When you made a covenant, there was a copy for each party involved. So Moses goes up to receive the two stone tablets. And he climbs up out of sight to the top of the mountain and we kind of told the perspective from the people that were on the plains down below. And so they saw this cloud. It was engulfed with God's glory with a big cloud. In verse 17, it says they saw a devouring fire on top of the mountain, a fire that would have consumed them. See, only Moses was permitted into the near presence of God because he was their mediator, going on behalf of his people. And so they stood off at a distance, and Moses represented them. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, he is up there meeting with God, receiving the instructions that he would come down and tell the people how to instruct the tabernacle that we see in the coming weeks. In Exodus 34, we read that when Moses came down the mountain, his face was glowing, it was transfigured. And the people said, Moses, put on a veil, we can't look at you. It's this transformation 
that Moses experienced in God's presence that was the whole aim of this covenant with them. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ is this mediator of a better covenant that has much better promises than the old covenant. And Christ didn't ascend to the top of Mount Sinai. He ascended into heaven itself. And after his work on this earth was complete, he went to the royal palace where his father resides and he was given the crown that was due to him as the rightful king who rules and reigns even today. And through Jesus Christ, we not only behold the face of God, but we're being transformed by him as we share in his majesty and his glory. Christ has accomplished everything that was necessary where you and I failed in order that we can see his greater glory and not be put to death immediately. One commentator says regarding this chapter here in Exodus 34, he says, this is the story of a worship service, the first one fully described in the Bible. It contains nearly all the basic elements of a public service, and thus it sets the pattern for biblical worship. There's a call to worship, the reading of God's word, confession of faith, and the sharing of a sacramental meal. Brothers and sisters, what we do here on Sunday mornings is not just the whims and ideas and opinions of men in order to bring entertainment or even just a time of teaching from God's word. God called Moses up the mountain. And so he calls us into his presence each Sunday to hear from him, to see him. There's a call to confession, a call to faith. And we have this sacramental meal, this covenant meal, And this meal is not just an empty ritual that we mindlessly carry on because it's been done for years and years. God reminds us through the bread and the wine that the person and work of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save to the uttermost those who would come to him by faith. This meal declares to us that if we come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, we will not be consumed, but we will rather experience this intimacy that our hearts desire. See, God has laid out and made clear to us how he desires for us to worship him. And so each and every Sunday, what we do when we gather here is we're rehearsing the gospel because we're forgetful people and we need to rehearse it each and every day and each and every week together corporately. Each and every element of this service is for engaging our hearts in covenant renewal each Sunday. Michael Horton writes um, in his book, he says, we're kind of responding, reflecting on the Lord's Day, he says this, he says, we gather each Lord's Day not out of merely a habit or social custom or felt needs, but because God has chosen this weekly festival as a foretaste of the everlasting Sabbath day that that will be enjoyed fully at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has called us out of the world and into his marvelous light. That is why we worship, he says. Brothers and sisters, may we gather each week with great expectation to enter into the presence of God and be transformed as we see his glory in ever-increasing measure. Hebrews 9 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you stand under condemnation. And so his presence for you is a dread because it means eternal separation. And so would you submit, would you relinquish control, and would you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You must have the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ, to cover your sin. And he promises you, when you do this, that he will write his law on your heart. 
And no longer will you have to fear his presence. But you'll be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Christ, let me urge every one of us not to neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We have the privilege of gathering here each Sunday to worship the Lord Jesus. Don't let the things of this world interfere with that. Our laziness, sports, entertainment, indifference, whatever it may be. For there's a day coming when we will see not just the bottom of God's feet, but we'll see him in the fullness of his splendor and majesty on that day. And John says in Revelation 19, he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If your faith is in Christ, you have a reservation with your name on it, a place at this feast. That's what you have to look forward to. And on that day it will be said that this is the God that we've been waiting for. May we rejoice in the glory of his salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we pine after so many other things than longing to be in your presence, to glimpse your glory. Lord, you have shown your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Lord, may we long to taste more of that each and every day. Would you allow us to die to the things of this world to see that there are far more glorious and rich things that our hearts are looking for that are met and found in Christ. Holy Spirit, guard us. Guard our gaze. May we not put it on our circumstances, but put it on the one who rules and reigns and who is returning on that day when we will be freed from all of the things that we struggle with here and we will be sitting at the feast beholding His glory for all eternity. Lord, we long for that day and so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.